0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of Silicon Valley, we sit down with Scott Orn, who runs operations at Cruise Consultant, a fast-growing startup CFO consultant firm that works with over 160 startup clients here in Silicon Valley. Scott also runs the Venture Debt Consultant Practice at Cruise. Before Cruise Consultant, Scott was a partner at Lighthouse Capital. In addition, Scott runs community products at Callisto Media. On today's show, we talk about how do companies get into trouble by having sloppy financials? What are common tax mistakes that startups make? When should a company bring a CFO consultant in? Stories from venture debt consultant with startups. And what is it like to grow a company while at the same time becoming a new parent? This and much more on today's episode. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Scott, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley.
1: Thanks, Sean. It's been a blast getting to know you, and I'm excited to tape the new podcast.
0: Scott, tell me a little bit about your career up until this point.
1: I started my career in 99, which is 20 years ago, which is, makes me pause for a second. But I did Tech M&A for three years at Hamburg and Quist, which got acquired by J.P. Morgan. And they were like kind of the godfather of Silicon Valley tech IPOs and M&A. Like they took Genentech public and Apple public and Netscape public. And I worked on some really great deals there, met a lot of great people. And then I went to a place called Lighthouse Capital, which is a venture capital fund that lends money and takes equity alongside that. So kind of unintuitive, weird business model, but actually really worked. And I worked my way up from analyst to partner, did about $100 million of the deals that I sourced So we might have heard of like Angie's List and Upwork and possible Foods and Serena Lily, and had a great run there. And then I watched what my wife was doing. My, she was actually my girlfriend at the time. She had started an accounting and tax firm for startups and it's called Cruise Consulting. And I watched her from day one. She had been a Deloitte tax CPA and a controller at a startup, but she got to 60 clients by herself. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's kind of like one of the rules of life is you want to either found something if you can or get behind a really strong founder. And so I did number two, which is get behind a really strong founder. So I joined her as the third person. And now five years later, we are 70 people big at Cruise. We have 220 clients, all startups. It's been a great run. And now I feel like I'm probably like you, how you're, you're just kind of maturing as a professional and really kind of have like your full complement of knowledge plus experience, you're kind of hitting your prime. That's how I feel right now.
0: Thank you for aging me right there. <laughs> but Cruise Consultant, it's a CFO consultant firm. When do companies start to utilize? They use us. The
1: classic is two people and a seed round, maybe 500K, a million dollars, $2 million. And they'll find us and they know that they need to set their, their systems up. Like, payroll, benefits, accounting, bill pay, all that stuff. And they also want to make sure all their taxes are taken care of. And these are the founders who are really thinking ahead, kind of the professional founders, because they know once they take VC money, VCs want compliance. They need to know what you're spending your money on, how long it's going to last. And they also don't want you to like mess up your taxes or let your Delaware franchise tax go long and all of a sudden lose your corporation status, things like that. So VCs kind of exert a positive pressure on the startups to be in compliance and do things the right way. And so that's why most of the companies come to us as like a two or three person company. We do get a lot of like series A, series B, slightly later stage, 20, 25 people companies. So it's probably 75% are seed, 25% are A and B, but those seed companies grow over time and we typically work with them for like four years. So all of a sudden in the blink of an eye, next thing you know, this company that came to you as two people all of a sudden has a hundred employees and then it's 150, and then it's 200, and they've hired a CFO and a VP of finance, and we're transitioning to their kind of in-house accounting and finance. But it's a really rewarding journey to be on with these companies because you're like, oh my gosh, this person three years ago had really no idea what they were building. They just had a little dream on a napkin they had written out, and all of a sudden now they're employing 150 employees and changing the world. It's really cool.
0: It was interesting. You used the term professional founders. Can you talk a little bit more about Your definition of a professional founder. And also, can you talk a little bit more if companies ever get in trouble for maybe having sloppy financials, maybe for tax reasons or anything in this growth process? Great questions.
1: So I use the term professional founders meaning like folks that are super serious taking institutional investor money. Because again, the bar really goes up when you take institutional money. They have just a different expectation. So bootstrap companies can you know maybe take a little way a little while to find their way in the world until they get to that kind of like hey we're going to do everything the right way industrial strength. And so there's a lot of founders who take money and know they're just going to do things the industrial strength perfectly accurate the whole way through. They're not the people who forget to do two or three tax returns, you know, two or three years of tax returns. We have tons of clients like that who also They've taken a little while to find their way, and maybe we're focused on building a product. But then they realize, oh my gosh, this financial debt. In the same way that like technical debt piles up, financial and tax debt, like not doing your tax returns really messes you up, and not being able to give the investors actual financials when they ask for it reflects poorly on you. And so that's when they come to us. It's it's kind of like we're all we're all learning as we go an entrepreneurial ecosystem, and. A lot of folks just need to learn sometimes the hard way that like, hey, you gotta do this stuff the right way, or else there's ramifications. And so that's what I mean by like someone who just wants to do things professionally from the start. In terms of the answer to your second question, are there people who have felt the pain of not of having sloppy financials or not doing their taxes? Absolutely. And the way you feel that pain, it stinks, it's usually when you get an inbound interest from a VC or MA. And Everyone, you know, the people who procrastinate, I'm a procrastinator too. You think like, "Oh, I'll plenty of time to do my financials and catch up later or not a huge deal if I don't do my taxes this year." But it is a big deal. But you think you're going to have time to repair it before it matters. But in the law of M&A and venture capital, when someone sees something they like and they want to buy or they want to invest in it, they're going to be very direct. They're going to come to you, they're going to approach you and not having your financials in shape is a really poor reflection to the VC. Put yourself like, Sean, you're the VC here. You want to invest in my company and you're about to give me like a $5 million term sheet for a series A and I can't even show you what I've spent money on for the last two years, right? It's like, that's a little rough. It's hard and it's not just for that That VC. That VC reports up to a partnership and that partnership has five to 10 other partners on it. And so that VC comes in and says, I really like this company. I like the product, but they don't have any kind of, they have no financial infrastructure. It's going to give everyone a little bit of a pause, right? So the nice thing is we've evolved to be able to handle that. So we actually get quite a few leads from venture capitalists who are like, hey, I'm just about to put money in this company. They need some help. And it's all the usual stuff. Can you help clean them up? And so we actually use the term cleanup for doing years worth of financials retroactively and catching everybody up. And then doing all the compliance repairs, like filing a couple of years of taxes, all the Delaware franchise tax, California, New York franchise taxes, getting them in shape, doing 1099s. So the good news is all this stuff can be fixed. It just takes some time and money and that's, that's what we're there for. But you never get a fir- another chance to make a first impression, right? And so whether it's a VC or even M&A is even kind of more serious because when someone's going to buy your company, they're going to give you a term sheet and almost always, unless you have Tremendous negotiating leverage, like another buyer right there. That number is probably going to be, you're going to try to negotiate up a little bit, but that buyer, once they give you a term sheet, they're kind of like looking for reasons to reduce the number because they're saving money, right, by reducing the number. So retraining based on not having accurate financials or not having financials that kind of reflect what they've been told about the business is a very common thing. So by not having things set up properly and accurate in real time you're risking a retrade which is like the worst feeling as an entrepreneur because you've you've spent years and years and years building this company and then you're so close to an exit and all of a sudden the price got reduced 20% and if you don't have leverage you may have to take that you know you may have to accept that offer but oftentimes they'll use the excuse of like there's a lot of compliance we can't trust the numbers da 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 and that's how they try to retrade the deal
0: So Scott, how far in advance do startups need to say they have all these problems, they want to raise funding, go back and start cleaning up? Say if I'm going to raise funding from a VC, is it going to take me three months to clean this up before I go raise money or more six months before I go and raise funding? How far in advance do I need to clean this up or start cleaning it up so it's all ready by the time I have that first VC meeting? So
1: I would say prevention is the best medicine. And so like set it up day one, like when you start getting your financing in, then I would just actually set it up then and do set up all your systems, set up your cadence of all your tax compliance, that kind of stuff. If you have procrastinated a couple of years, then you're probably going to need three months at least. Maybe that's probably the bare minimum to clean things up. Sometimes companies will call and they'll, they'll need something like in two weeks. That's just not doable. There's just too much work. And you also end up making a bad selection on your service provider if you're in a huge hurry, because the people who have bandwidth usually are the people who aren't that busy for a reason. So you kind of want to like, I would say always give yourself three months, but it just kind of going back to my last answer, like you think you have three months, but like then that inbound call comes in as a surprise. It's almost always a surprise. So it's better just to plan ahead and get it done right away once you raise money.
0: Do you have any examples of when a startup went to raise fund and, and the deal went just sour, just bad because of it?
1: There's a lot of like general times where like the retrain, because the financials are not accurate or the financial model isn't what the CEO told the other CEO over coffee, right? Like that's the classic one. Like we're gonna do ten million dollars in revenue next year and dah-da-da. And then and that's the CEO telling the acquiring CEO the acquiring CEO gets really fired up cuz everyone wants a fast growing acquisition but then the numbers come over and it's 7 instead of 10 and that's the projection and so like it gives the the acquiring CEO a pause because remember when the acquiring CEO is signing up to buy this company the acquiring CEO is putting their name on the line with the board and if this doesn't work out they're going to be in trouble potentially even fired there's usually like a line manager or a product manager who's also like a business manager who's signing off on this because they think that this acquisition is going to really goose their group or their revenue. And so that person is if the company is once they're bought, if that company underperforms on their financials, they may even have to do layoffs. Like they may have to get rid of their people in sympathy for this this acquisition they signed up for, right? So like no one wants to take burn on that's not predictable. No one wants to take a company or buy a company that isn't performing. And so these projections and these reliable financials are like super duper important. Those are like kind of generals. I do have some really awesome stories of like, I remember there was one company that they needed a bunch of tax compliance and they thought we were too expensive. And so they're like, no, I'm gonna go do something else. And then two months later, the CEO called Vanessa, my wife and our founder, like at five o'clock in the day and said, I just got a term sheet from a VC. They ran a compliance check on us. And it turns out we've, we've lost our Delaware corporation status. Which is like the most basic thing. And so the VC fund was like a top tier Sand Hill Road VC fund, I'm not going to name them. But like, can you imagine that that VC, it was an $8 million term sheet. And he's like, we need to get all this fixed right away. And we're like, we can't fix it that fast. It's like exactly your question, right? Like we cannot fix it in a week or two weeks. It's impossible to do. And so that was a great moment for that CEO. And I think that company's actually gone on to be successful, but it was like talking about getting religion and really kind of believing what you need to do and do things professionally. That was a a moment for that CEO.
0: When something like that happens, whose fault is it on the team that they completely forgot to renew their Delaware C-Corp?
1: If they don't have someone who's doing this work for them, then it's the CEOs. Because the CEO made the decision not to hire someone. In this case, it was the CEO decided He didn't want to spend the money, and that was a decision he made. And that's kind of like the role of a CEO to start up or any company is capital allocation. You're making decisions all day long on what you want to spend money on and what you don't want to spend money on. And so it was his responsibility, and he's the one who had to tell the VCs that they lost their corporate status. When you lose your corporate status, like you don't have a trademark anymore, you don't, you know, it's like a big deal. So, but anyways, yeah, it's it's almost always the CEO's responsibility.
0: So companies, you know, normally are Accelerating or dive bombing, or at least kind of how it seems in the startup world. When they're dive bombing, is that when they're typically missing their taxes? And how much more does this accelerate the problem?
1: You know, it's actually more, missing your taxes is more of a symptom than a cause, I would say. It's a a signal that there's not enough institutional control and emphasis put on like having a healthy organization and healthy culture. So when I see companies that are doing that, I know they need to make a cultural shift. A company that's dive bombing is usually dive bombing because they raised a lot of money and the dogs are not eating the dog food, or maybe they grew too fast. Like you're seeing with a lot of the softband companies right now, like they just, they took something and tried to hyperscale it in a way that just wasn't going to work or didn't work. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of money that's been wasted. And so those companies usually probably had pretty good institutional control before, but then they tried to go to like another level. Of growth and they couldn't handle it. Like That organization could not handle growing that fast and absorbing that much capital. So that's kind of like the company, you have to kind of be careful what you ask for in terms of raising a bunch of money and growing really fast because most companies cannot handle that. It's rare to have a Facebook that can actually, like Mark Zuckerberg held that place together with tape, but he did it. Now they're incredible. There's not too many companies that can absorb that. But one symptom of not having strong organizational control and culture is like really missing your financials or missing your projections or not doing your taxes, things like that.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what venture debt is and maybe some advice or best practices in that area?
1: Yeah. So venture debt is a complement to venture capital equity. And so the typical use case is a startup will go out and raise you know $5 million or $10 million in equity. In preferred shares. And so those investors have put in money that doesn't need to be paid back, it's equity, they own part of the company. And a nice little complement to that would be getting a little bit of extra money in the form of debt because it's less dilutive to help lengthen the company's runway. In the startup world, you're all about hitting your milestones. So when you pitch a VC, you're probably saying, hey, in 18 to 24 months, I'm going to hit X, Y, and Z milestones. So for a SaaS company, it might be 10 paying customers. For a consumer company, it might be a million users or something like that. There's something that everyone's going to look at and decide that this company is worth funding and the the next venture capitalists are going to come in. Well, not hitting your milestones is really, really painful because the insiders have to keep funding the company, which they don't want to do. Or they may just throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to fund the company anymore and it goes out of business, right? So if you're a savvy entrepreneur and savvy VC, having a little bit of extra runway, a little cushion or an insurance policy in the form of venture debt is pretty powerful. And typically the terms on venture debt, there's kind of two buckets of venture debt, but usually it's, you give up a little tiny bit of equity, like 25 basis points or 50 basis points in the company. So kind of what you'd give like a director level employee at your company. So not a lot. And then you're agreeing to pay interest and principal back over time to get the lender back their money and to drive an interest return for the lender. The lender is excited because if this turns out to be a Facebook or a really big one, then that equity, even though it's not a lot, is going to be really, really valuable. So the, the firm that did Facebook, WTI, I think made two or $300 million on $2 million loans. But that equity kick was so high that it made, it made their fund. And so there's lots of stories like that. Google, Juniper, we've done some, at Lighthouse did some really huge ones. It was really awesome. But you also are sometimes going to lose money as a lender because not all startups hit their milestones. Not all companies can actually raise an extra. So some of those equity pops are also going to offset losses. But from a founder's perspective, the great thing about it is it's less dilutive than equity. You probably sold 20% of your company to get whatever amount of capital you just raised in equity. This, you're selling 25 basis points or 50 basis points. So very, very small amount. But you are trading off the lender will have the senior lien on the company, so they get all their money out first before the investors get their money out, and the, the, before the common starts participating. And they're going to just be a little bit less flexible than an equity investor would be. But in all, in all, I recommend that companies do venture debt, and we can talk about some of the ratios that you should think about and some of the pricing if you like.
0: Yeah, actually, I would like to talk about that, but I'd also like to ask: if they're in first position with the lien, what is the lien on? Is it on IP? Because a start probably wouldn't have many assets.
1: So that's an awesome question, and you're exactly right. Startup doesn't have that many assets, but they are developing something interesting, intellectual property-wise. And so you will typically get a lien on all the assets. Sometimes the startups negotiate a what's called a negative pledge lien on the IP, meaning the lender doesn't have the lien on the IP, but no one does. And so it's a little bit of inside baseball here, but when there's an asset that doesn't have a direct lien on it, like IP in this situation, Then when there's a liquidation of the company and that company's assets, all the creditors participate in the proceeds of that specific asset with no lien on it in a pro rata way. So say lender has $2 million outstanding and there's another $200,000 of payables like the gardener and the accounting firm and the bakery down the street that does the weekly cupcakes and whatever else you can think of that you might owe money as a company. Well, the total pool of unsecured creditor claims then would be $2.2 million, $2 million plus the 200000 unsecured. And then that means that the lenders, the venture lenders, would participate on a 10 to 11% rate, 10 to 11 ratio of the proceeds. So essentially every $9 out of every 10 on the proceeds of that IP would actually go to the lender, even though they weren't secured in that specific asset. Because they're going to be the biggest lender in the company by a lot usually, they're still going to get most of the proceeds on the intellectual property. This is one of those ones where it's like a lot easier when you're looking at a spreadsheet and you can actually just see the numbers. But the big takeaway is the venture lender is going to benefit the most and by far the most from any liquidation of the assets, far and beyond any other creditor. And until the venture lender is actually paid back, the venture capitalists and their preferred equity and the common, which is usually the management team and the founders, are not going to participate at all. So you got to clear that debt. Like if you sell your company for 5 million, but you only you have 5 million dollars of venture debt outstanding, then the equity folks and the common equity are not going to get anything.
0: So then to go out to these banks and get the venture debt, does the founder need board approval to go out and get venture debt or what do the VCs think of this process?
1: Great question. So You do need board approval. You kind of want to be like a savvy CEO, right? You don't want to just spring it on them at a board meeting. So you're probably going to start like kind of sanity checking this in the lead up to doing it. Like all good things, you know, you want to kind of pre-sell it. And so probably when the round's coming together, the equity round, you're going to say to your venture capitalists, hey, do you mind if I get a couple million dollars worth of debt? And as long as you're asking for a reasonable amount, meaning you're not over-leveraging the company, then the venture capitalists will usually say yes, because they can understand that a little bit of debt is actually pretty helpful because it extends the runway. Where the VCs don't like it and where they, they feel and I feel that companies get in trouble is when they take too much debt. So sometimes I've sat in meetings where the, fa- the lender or even when I was a lender would ask, how much debt do you want? And the entrepreneur would say, as much as you'll give me, which is like the most negative signal you could ever do. Now, the entrepreneur in their head is thinking, this is my bet. I've bet my life on this company, You know, not literally, but like the last five years of my life. So like if it goes to zero, I don't really care. They want to maximize their upside and maximize the amount of runway they have. But that's not like a really great way to signal to your partners, both the VCs and your lenders. And so I always recommend something like 20 to 40% debt to equity ratio, meaning if you raise a $5 million round, probably $2 million of debt's the right number for you. And there's another kind of way of thinking about this, which is you really only want your debt to be worth three to six months of cash runway. So if you start depending on the debt too much, it's another signal that you're overleveraging, And all of a sudden, you're relying on lenders to not do anything funny or not kind of throw a wrench in the company. And so you don't want to rely too long on that. You don't want like a year's worth of debt. And so the cool thing about it is most companies raise 24 months of equity capital. And so three to six months of debt runway would be basically equivalent to 20, 25% equity or debt to equity ratio. So by not overleveraging a company, you're still maintaining control. The equity investors can always put more money in, so that if something goes wrong, they can keep it going. When the company's overleveraged, all of a sudden the equity investors don't want to put more money in because they know that if they put more money in, it's just going to pay the lenders back. And so you end up by overleveraging. You think you're doing, you think you're being smart and optimizing your outcome as an entrepreneur, but you're actually shortening your outcome because if anything goes wrong, there's no slack. There's no way for people to help you out you're just kind of in it. And so that's why that 25 to 40% kind of debt to equity ratio makes a lot of sense.
0: And then what type of interest is being paid on this
1: debt? Another great question. This is awesome. So there's two buckets of lenders. There is banks and there are fund lenders. And so the world kind of in venture lending divides into those two categories. So banks are like Silicon Valley Bank, Bridge Bank. PacWest, which used to be square one. And so their ball game, the game they play is they already hold your deposits. Like you have your cash in the bank. And so they have a very low cost of funds. Like banks, like what was the last interest rate you got on your checking account?
0: Probably zero. Probably <laughs> exactly, zero.
1: exactly. And so their cost of funds is zero, which is a pretty awesome business to be in. So for them to charge 5 or 6% interest rate, that means they're making, essentially, before they lose money and things like that, they're making 5 or 6%, like net. That's awesome. Now, the other thing that's powerful about controlling your deposits, your cash, is that there's a term in lending, which is called the right of offset. And basically what it does is it lets a bank say, hey, we have $5 million of your money in our accounts, and you owe us $5 million. So we're just going to offset that, and we're clean, we're clear. Now, as a startup, that's like the worst thing of all time because all of a sudden your five million dollars just disappeared. But banks have the ability to do that if things go bad. Now they wouldn't be able to do that unless you were in a default stage, meaning you violated the terms of your loan. But the other thing that banks do is they put in terms like material adverse change or investor abandonment, and they both kind of mean like if something changes in the company and the investors are not supportive, then that is a defense of default, and then they can move to to fixing things. And so. Like A sample material average change might be your CEO gets fired, or the board withdraws, or even I've even seen it. I don't agree with this, but I've seen lenders enacting material average change when the market changes or goes down a lot. And so all of a sudden, the loan is effectively getting called at the wrong time for you as a startup, the worst time. Investor abandonment clause is pretty close to that, but it basically says, if we call Sean, your investors, and ask them if they're going to put more money in, And they say no, then they're not supporting the company. And that is an event of default. They have to put more money in when we ask them. And of course, you can kind of imagine the bank is only going to do that call when you're running low on cash and spending their money. Like if they've given you a $5 million loan and you're at a $3 million cash balance, so you've spent two of their million already, that's when they're going to make that call because they don't want to lose more money. They want to make sure the investors kind of top up the company. If your investors don't follow through, that's an event of default. And then they can go go about doing things like forcing you to sell the company or a right of offset, or whatever. Now, banks don't do that lightly. It's a pretty serious thing for them to do because it hurts their reputation in the community, but they also don't want to lose money. They're, they're federally regulated. And so for them to lose money is a really big deal. So with all that said, you might say, why would I ever take money from a bank? Well, it's really inexpensive. A five or 6% interest rate with a little bit of warrants is like, an incredible deal. You know. This is a money losing startup that's borrowing like at what's close to a mortgage. And so it's a, it's a really great deal. So sometimes when a company doesn't really need a ton of money, I'll recommend they take money from a bank because it's not as reliable as taking money from a fund, which I'll explain in a second, but it's really cheap and it's really good for dressing up your balance sheet and, and just giving you like a sense of comfort. So that's the banks who lend money. The second category is fund lenders. Which is what I used to work at Lighthouse. And there's other ones like WTI, there's a lot of fund lenders do is they say, hey, I'm gonna give a startup really flexible capital. I'm not gonna have a material adverse change clause. I'm not gonna have an investor abandonment clause. So you can actually use this money. Sean.com, the hottest startup around, can use this money, right? So you're like, great, I can actually reliably hire engineers and spend money on marketing. And I know the loan's not gonna get called on me at the worst possible time. But the catch is they need to drive a much higher return. And so, cause their investors, they don't have the deposit base that's federally regulated like a bank does. So their investors are like, ours were like MIT and CalPERS and Verizon pension fund, big, big pension funds or endowments that want a really nice return. And so typically they'll be somewhere around 11 to 12% interest rates. So contrast that, it's about double as expensive as a bank. And they'll ask for more warrants. They ask for like 50 basis points to 75 basis points of a company. But again, you can reliably spend this money. So sometimes I say, and this is like, I literally give this exact kind of speech to the entrepreneurs. And I say, you kind of have to decide, are you someone who like shopping at Target, which makes great products at a very low cost, or do you want to shop at Nordstrom's where you're, you're willing to pay up, but you get a really nice jacket and you look great in it and you can walk around town and you can and rely on that jacket. And so that is the decision startup founders make. Typically when a company really needs the money and is really going to rely on it, I'll recommend they go work with a fund.
0: You would mentioned warrants. Could you talk a little bit about that? And could you also talk about the market change and getting the money called? How much information does the bank, you'd mentioned that they know about your money in the deposit, but are you also giving them quarterly financials, quarterly information? How much knowledge does the bank know of your hitting your milestones? Let
1: me answer that one first, and then I'll go back to warrant coverage. So the bank actually gets, in any lender, they get monthly financials from you. They actually have a pretty good pulse of what's going on from a pure number standpoint. They also do usually quarterly update calls or meetings. So they want to hear like what's going on, what big customers you sign, progress, if other venture capitalists have inquired about leading next round. And then they have VC relationships. And if you kind of think about game theory, the venture capitalists have big portfolios. The banks have giant portfolios, right? There's like three or four big startup banks in the ecosystem. And so the venture capitalist works with the bank over and over and over again. Whereas you as a founder, you only work with a bank like on one company over like five to eight years, right? And so the VCs have a vested interest in keeping the lenders, the banks and the funds excited and happy to work with them. And so they should, if they're taking the long view, not want to pull the wool over the banks and give them a bad deal. Now, some do because they don't think long-term and they're kind of desperate. And we can talk about why that would happen. But for the most part, the VCs are pretty good communicators with the lenders. And so you can imagine the lender comes and meets with you at Sean.com and they see your financials, they see you're burning some money, but they hear great things from you. And then they go check in with the VC and the VC is like, oh, I don't know, Sean.com, not as hot as it used to be. We're having some problems. So that's contradicting what you just told them, right? So I think one of the most powerful things about Silicon Valley and also in the New York ecosystem and in China, I think this is starting to develop too, where companies have a vested interest in being a good actor and telling the truth and playing by the rules because that helps you out a lot more than trying to hide bad news from someone, whether it's a VC or a lender, even a future employee. The word gets around very quickly and you become labeled if you're someone who's not, like, not a good actor. So that's how the bank knows what's going on. Ultimately, the lenders look they're kind of thinking of like when you start spending their money, the money they gave you—that five million dollar debt deal that they gave Sean.com. When you're like at three million, you spent two of their million. That's when they're getting really nervous. They want to see you raising a new round right at that point, and they're checking in with you pretty frequently.
0: Whoever owns the domain Sean.com, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna make millions. Any bump in audience this month, please link back to our show.
1: Hopefully, it's a publicly traded stock going through the roof on Nasdaq right now. So warrants are. Another word for stock options, so people are pretty familiar with stock options because they'll read about Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg and how their options are worth billions of dollars. And really all a all stock option or a warrant is, is the ability to buy stock at a later time for a set price. And so when you join a startup at an early date, you get a really low stock option price because the company is really not worth anything. So you might get like a dollar a share or something like that. If you are fortunate to be at one of the startups that actually can do an IPO and go big or get bought for a lot of money, you might get bought for $10 a share, something like that. So all of a sudden, you as a founder, you've made $9 profit per share you could have bought. And the cool thing about an option or a warrant is you don't have to buy it right away. You can wait until it's like in the money, meaning you've done the IPO or the M&A events happen, that's when you buy it. And so it's a really powerful instrument in that it gives someone a lot of optionality and a lot of value in that over a portfolio, odds are a lender is going to have a lot of good companies that actually have equity or warrants for something. So a warrant is, is another word for option, but it's basically outsiders of the company. So people are not employees. And so a common warrant might say for Sean.com again, that, that $5 million deal, the lender might get the ability to buy 500,000 shares at a dollar a share in the future over 10 years, whenever they want. And so again, if Sean.com goes public at 10 bucks a share, wow, that founder just made $4.5 million profit. That happens a decent amount. Like it's probably, I'd say 5 to 10% of a a lender's portfolio has some type of equity profit. Now, sometimes it's one times your money. Sometimes it's two times your money. Occasionally it's like 100X or 1,000X like a Facebook.
0: And you would mentioned also some VCs may not be thinking long-term talk a little bit more about that.
1: I think the vast majority of venture capitalists do think long-term. And so they're not incentivized to burn a lender or a key partner, but sometimes there's people who start, you know, join the venture capital industry after doing a startup or they're just not like indoctrinated in all the processes and kind of the culture quite yet. And so, and they may only have like two or three investments and they're being judged in their partnership on the success of those two or three investments. So they don't have the full portfolio effect because they only get to make a certain number of bets. The fund probably does 50 investments or 25 or 100. So the fund itself with all the partners has a lot of diversification. There's a pretty good odds if they're doing their job the right way, they're going to have three or four big winners in that. But the specific partner only has two or three or maybe four investments. And so sometimes they're desperate to try to save a, a deal going bad so they can try to help get it bought or something like that but they also cannot get money from their partnership because the partnership knows the company's not doing very well. That would be the circumstance, and again, very rare that someone would do this, but that would be the circumstance where a VC would try to get a lender to basically give a loan to a not so great company. Now, again, there's a lot of checks and balances because even the partnership knows if that company is gonna go try to get debt. And they may, some of the kind of senior partners may gently encourage the, the VC who's trying to prove themselves That they shouldn't be taking debt in a company that's not going anywhere because that's going to hurt the company long term. They also know that the VC fund's reputation is on the line with those lenders. And so, like you can imagine if SVB does a bunch of deals with a certain venture capital fund and they're all dogs, they're just going to stop lending to that fund's companies, right? So the partners who have kind of the longer view are usually going to coach that oftentimes younger VC on how to kind of be a long-term actor and make sure they do the right thing for everyone in the ecosystem. But there's greed and there's temptation. And, and for the founders, some do try to get a lender into a company that's not going anywhere. Because again, this is like a very binary bet for them on their life. Like They've started this company, they put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it, which I can totally relate to. And so they want to do anything they can to save it. But usually debt that, that is really not going to be able to save you because it's just not a long enough runway to fix things. You really probably need to do like a recap and take more equity at a lower valuation and kind of get it going, restart it again to get it going, give yourself a long enough timeline.
0: You talk about that taking money at a lower valuation because from what I've heard, that is basically the kiss of death.
1: It is rare right now because we have been in just like the, maybe the 10 greatest years of venture capital in a very long time. And so companies that weren't getting funded would typically just go out of business because the VCs would have a portfolio of higher performers they want to focus on. Also, that founder could probably just go get a job at a a senior job at High Performer and get a bunch of stock options. So the the rising tide that we've experienced our last 10 years has made it so there's way less down rounds. Now, when times get tough, and you're kind of seeing it with the soft bank companies, they're having a really hard time. Those companies are doing down rounds. So we worked at a down round from, I think it was like 40 billion to 8 billion, for example. And so what is really happening there is like the venture capitalists and the founders are sitting around saying, this is still a good business we just got ahead of ourselves on valuation and probably spent too much money so let's save the business it can be right sized but with that right sizing we can't have the same valuation expectations that we used to have and so there's something called a cram down where all those preferred shares that had you know that made up that 40 billion dollar valuation are typically written off almost to zero or like a penny the new money comes in and sets a new valuation and takes new preferred stocks the the old preferred that was written down to a penny is also written down to common so it doesn't have a A liquidation preference anymore and so the new money kind of like gets to write the new contract and write it all from scratch and kind of clear everything up now that is very very painful for everybody because everyone who owns stock at those high preferred valuations has to take a write-off in their own fund accounting and all the employees that exercise their options in anticipation of a big win are getting written down too so they're taking a loss so it's really kind of like taking your medicine it's not fun to do but in the case of WeWork, like we, we have an office at WeWork. We love WeWork. It's a great service. The valuation was just messed up. And so it's a really smart thing to do in those situations, but it's painful. Oftentimes they'll bring in new management because it's really hard for the old management to kind of get their head around it and also make those cuts. And so that's what happens. If we go into a period of you know, sustained kind of evaluations not going up and it's not as successful in the start of the you'll start seeing a lot more of those because everyone's alternatives have gotten worse the VC can't invest in in as many high-flying stocks or doesn't have as many high-flying companies. So they're going to focus, try to get those ones that are mediocre out to an exit. The founders can't just go join Amazon or Google and get a ton of restricted stock and make a ton of money. So they're going to try to make it work. And so that is symptomatic of like tough times. So like in 08 to 2010, you saw a lot of down rounds, a lot of recaps, but a lot of those companies actually did really well. They just needed more time and needed to reset the valuations.
0: So before you worked at an investment bank called Lighthouse Capital. What was it like to be an investment banker?
1: So Lighthouse was the venture lending fund that I worked at. It was a venture capital fund that did debt and equity. The M&A world, I worked at Hamburg and Quist that was acquired by JP Morgan. And that was super fun, although I was like classic low man on a totem pole, awesome first job out of college. And I had the privilege of working on, an, on a huge merger network solutions and VeriSign, which was like a $40 billion merger. A little bit of play money, because that was at the top, I think literally to the day, top of the NASDAQ in 2000, when that got announced, but I got to work with amazing management teams. And I also got to see like the head people at our firm, Dan Case, Paul Cleveland, David Golden, who are just like some of the best M&A bankers you've ever seen in your life work their magic. And so I got to not just learn a bunch of skills, like how to do financial forecasting and DCFs and accretion dilution models and comps and things like that, but I also got to see how to be a professional. And I got to sit in with them on meetings where they talked with the clients. I got to see the culture they built, at HQ. It was a super entrepreneurial culture. Like people don't usually associate investment banks with entrepreneurship, but it was a very entrepreneurial place. And so I took that, I've taken that through all my jobs. And it was really, I was really blessed and it was a great first start. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're in college or you're starting your career, getting into a position where you can see a lot, a lot of different things and work with a lot of great people, that's That's what I would focus on. It doesn't really matter if you're working at a company or a service provider like a bank or consulting firm. Just find somewhere where you identify with the people, where you identify with the culture, and you'll see a lot of stuff and then good things will happen.
0: And a more personal question. You're a new parent now and with your wife growing this company. What's it like? What recommendation do you have to balance that work-life balance for new parents out there or people that are working with a significant other
1: they're both difficult. Doing it together is really, really difficult. I would say probably the most important thing working with your significant other, like your wife or girlfriend or husband, is really about having some boundaries and being really good at communication. And so, like for example, last night, Vanessa was asking me a question at 8.40 p.m. about some comp stuff. And I was like, you know what? This is not a good time to be talking about work comp at 8.45 p.m. But like, I totally get it because I've asked her questions like that. At night as well, and then this morning I had a decision I had to make today early on, and it was seven forty-five. We were drinking coffee, and so the way I did it was I said, "Hey, I have a business decision to make. Can you help me make it?" But if it's if it's too early in the morning for you and you need some more coffee, and need we can wait a couple hours. And so that was a way for her to kind of to bow out gracefully and not start a fight. Now, two years ago, I would have just asked the question to her, and then she would have gotten stressed out, and you know, so like having these boundaries and asking permission to ask someone for a decision is really powerful. One of the things I've really learned in the last year through some coaching is asking permission when you're going to give someone the feedback is really powerful too, because it really helps them get in the mode of accepting that feedback. And that's what you want. Giving feedback is a generous act, but that generosity, you're kind of hoping that the person accepts the feedback and thinks about it. And so by asking, hey, do you have a second? Are you open to some feedback? actually really really powerful. So that's my tip for kind of navigating that. And, and I also think like we go to marriage counseling. I highly recommend going to marriage counseling. Even if you are not if you're founders and you're not married, you work together so much that I recommend coaching so that you can work through these kind of communication challenges that that married people have too. So those getting those outside help is really important. In terms of managing a kid, I I actually don't have like a silver bullet. I think Everyone needs to get as much sleep as possible. That's probably the single most important thing. Having some really helpful childcare people, we're very blessed. Our, nanny has, our nannies have a great relationship. They're part-time with our daughter. So they're, they're like almost extensions of us and they have the same values as us, which is really helpful. But I think you also just got to kind of just buckle up and be ready for a couple of tough years and less sleep deprivation. And just remember that you love each other and that the kid is more important Than anything else, and making those investments in the kid's health and and uh, happiness pays off later.
0: But Scott, I also have to ask: I've heard in the past, VCs may not be interested in investing in companies that are founded by either married couple or boyfriend girlfriend. Yeah, what's kind of your opinion on this, or what have you seen in the Valley?
1: You know, it's I've heard that many times too, and um, and of course I totally get the reason for not wanting to invest in couples. And the reasons are, you know, it's very stressful in the relationships if something bad could happen in the relationship that spills over to the company. There's also sometimes not enough checks and balances. Like you have VC money. VCs are all about, again, that peer pressure on compliance and doing things the right way. It would probably be easier to steal money or do something kind of uncouth if it's a husband and wife because there's the checks and balances aren't there as much. However, there's been a lot of really successful companies that were founded by husband and wife teams. So most people don't know this, but Cisco was actually a husband and wife team, like one of the largest. So, so you would miss out on Cisco and there's a lot of other ones like Eventbrite is a company founded by a husband and wife team. There's been many husband and wife teams where maybe one of them, the the wife was the founder and then the husband came in later in my situation or you know, husband started and then the wife came in. You don't want to miss out on those. Either. There's so many good examples of that. So I think the most important thing as a VC is to make sure that the founders share share the same culture you do, like all about accountability and checks and balances. And everyone sees where this company is going and that they have resources like the coaching I was talking about and the counseling and a strong exec team. Because as a venture capitalist, you can actually help control the exec team. Like most venture capital firms, like my friend, Glenn Evans at Greylock. Like all he does all day for Greylock is recruit great executives for their portfolio companies. It's actually a competitive advantage for a lot of the VC firms. And so you can actually help place great executives around that couple and help, you know, magnify some of their strengths and address some of their weaknesses. So I would say never pass on a deal. You don't want to miss the next Cisco or the next, next event, right? But make sure they have the right tools to be successful.
0: Scott, we got to get you on the show again in the future to talk about VC competitive advantages and, and everything else that's going on. But if anyone wants to find out more information about you, Cruise Consulting, what's the best way to go about doing
1: it? By the way, thank you for the invitation. I'll take you up on that. It's been really fun. For Cruise, you can just go to cruiseconsulting.com or type it into Google. It's gonna, I hear this Google thing is going to be pretty big and important. It's Cruise with a K, K-R-U-Z-E, Consulting. And we're happy to talk to anyone. We focus on angel or VC-backed companies that are Delaware C-Corp. So anyone who writes in, we'll talk to you. And if you're not a fit for us, we'll, we'll refer you to five other accountants that are a fit for your kind of company. So if you're like an LLC or an S Corp or something that's kind of more bootstrapped, we can just refer you to good accounts for that too.
0: Great. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And please write a review on iTunes, give us five stars. That encourages us to create more episodes like this in the future. And we want to thank Scott once again for coming on the show and look forward to all the comments and feedback. So thank you everyone. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the dot com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.